out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Sam Cutler, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about his life in music, especially the early years, the very early years. In fact, it goes back to the 60s when he worked with people like the Ronan Stones and their famous concert in Hyde Park a few days after Brian Jones had died and also went to America and did the Altamont gig as well and then went on to work with people like the Grateful Dead and, and a lot more besides. Anyway, after some casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to um, the important part of the, quest- uh, of the interview. It's kind of quite long, but um, it's enjoyable because, let's face it, Sam is a legend. So uh, I was talking about the yeah, 60s and the fact that he was there at the beginning, really, the birth that is rock and roll, pop, modern music, all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, Sam, it's all over to you. Yeah, in, from the English beginnings, at least in some ways, yeah. Yes. I, mean, I, uh, I hesitate to characterise my own uh, contribution. I mean, the 60s was very strange. Yes. Strange. Everybody you... was, uh, decided that they didn't, you know, didn't want to be who they were and looking to be somebody else. You know, there was a great change going on with young people in the 60s. I mean, I, w- I was, what was I? In 63, I was 20. Right. Yeah, that's quite cool. So it just, you know, just hit me. That, and there was that, that famous one. poem by Philip Larkin when he said the 60s started in... 63 with the first Beatles albums and Ladies Chatterley's Lover because the 60s never so it doesn't fit completely sort of like dump from 60 to 69 does it it kind of the 60s became more the 60s as the decade went on if that makes any sense well I mean yeah it's like the word young it's meaningless really it means all things to all people you know the the the, the, the phrase the 60s doesn't literally apply to you know dates on a calendar um yeah and it kind of probably had its birth in 1957 and probably ended in 1972 or something you know what i mean Uh, i mean the 60s was a mental thing was what i was trying to get at was that people were in the post-war english world were fed up with england young people were fed up with the old ways they were wishing that parents had always, you know, called the Second World War the best time of their lives, uh, um, you know, would just go away and get old and disappear, and that something new and fre- refreshing and, and, and vital would come along that, that, that appealed to people. And, of course, that was music. There was nothing else. What no. else was there? There you know, isn't actually. But did you did you sort of brush against that kind of period of the beat generation with Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg? Were they on your radar? Before? Of course. I mean, I read uh, I read on the road, and that changed my life. Right. And, as it did. I mean, the, the two things were going on: music, literature, and drugs. Yes. All three of which, you know, contributed to a completely uh, fresh gestalt in a very small minority of people 
mainly in London, but a lot of it was to do with universities. So there were little cliques of like-minded people in Liverpool, Liverpool University, where they were making LSD, at Manchester you know, University, where they were making LSD, at the University of Sussex at Brighton, where they were making LSD, in London, at Imperial College, or throughout the university system, there were people um, getting high that the authorities were blissfully unaware of for a short period of time. Yeah. And it was not, was uh, it, and was it, it wasn't illegal then though, was it, LSD? um, Well, whether it was or it wasn't, I mean, it was in the end, of course, uh, I can't remember exactly what year, 66 or something like that, 65. Yeah, I mean, it was illegal, but since when has that stopped English people doing what English people do? Well, absolutely. And, and you know, it must have been good uh, for those. And there was a kind of a huge developing or evolving underground scene. It's difficult to look back on those years and, and to realise or, or to, to, ex, to explain to people how um, divided English culture became. There was a kind of petty bourgeois middle-class England that had, you know, the BBC and, you know, symphony orchestras and and uh, dreamed about going to Covent Garden. And then there, there were all these scruffy oiks who were trying to learn to play guitar, smoking lots of hash, um, drinking uh, in pubs under age, going to, you know, Humphrey Littleton and, and Chris Barber jazz bands yes. and listen to blues in the interim, you know what I mean? And then bands like Pink Floyd and, and people like that who were learning how to, you know, play their instrument and play and wanting to play music that, um, if you like, reflected, not directly, but indirectly at least, reflected the kind of drug experience Drugs play the central role in the 60s that um, I think that, you know, um, it can't can't be given sufficient emphasis, really. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was ubiquitous in at least the the groups that I hung out around. And I mean, I was trying to, I was actually training to be a teacher. Right. From 63 to 66 and running a folk club. And... Everybody I knew just about was um, was smoking hash. Yeah, they weren't taking LSD and getting crazy, but lots of people were. And if you went to Richmond Park, you know, the day after it rained, there was hundreds of hippie, hippies, you know, <laughs> photo hippies strolling around Richmond Park looking for mushrooms. They loved their you know, mushrooms, didn't they? So were yeah. you a bit? Were you a beatnik? Did you did you participate in the Battle of Bouley by any chance? Was, was that kind of a because even the jazz scene was divided, wasn't it? The Battle of Bouley. Well, I'll tell you a funny uh, story about all that. I mean, I know I've you know I I never really have um, been somebody that considered myself you know a mod, a rocker, a beatnik, or whatever. I've never kind of subscribed to those labels. And in fact, <coughs> I've spent a lot of time making sure that nobody was quite able, you know, to define me. But I can remember um, I was working with um, um, uh, a group of people in uh, in uh, West London, right, and uh, called Black Hill. And uh, we were doing free concerts in various places, Hyde Park and shit like that. But this was before the Stones concert in 1969. So it would have been 
<coughs> I think if I'm right, 67, maybe 68. This is a long time ago. Anyway, in uh, Parliament Hill Fields, we set up a stage and Fleetwood Mac were going to play. And I, I thought with the sad, current sad death about of Peter Green, it would be nice to tell this story. So there was... Um, a few thousand people there. It was a free concert, you know, proper stage and all that, all set up. And so um, at the back of the stage, there was a wall, you know, across the stage, and there was a door behind the drum kit. So we were all going to go on stage through that door. So everybody went on stage and they all plugged in and everybody was ready to go. And I walked up to the microphone and went, ladies and gentlemen, Fleetwood Mac, at which point, uh, like, a grey barrage of beer bottles kind of appeared <laughs> in the cloud in front of me, right? And everybody saw them. It's like it was all in slow motion. We all saw this coming, and everybody sprinted over the drum kit towards this tiny back door on the back of the stage to escape. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. It was amazing. The stage was littered with broken beer bottles. And there's huge fights going on between various sections of the crowd. And that was a kind of, I don't know, a, a proto-mods and rockers thing. So I don't know what it was, man. It was yes. Like, but, we the, but, but even the jazz world was divided, which I kind of, you know, because there was that famous clip of someone saying there was nine microphones stolen from the BBC at the Battle of Bouley. And it's like, God, even jazz fans could kick off in those days. Yeah, well, everything was, everything was, you know, uh, what's the word? Desperately meaningful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everybody was like, you know, you know, be, be, and and people were fed up with the kind of, you know, behaving as if they were English gentlemen. Everybody right. Was, yes. You know, fuck you, fuck you. We're fed up with all this. We don't want, you know, we're fed up with traditional jazz. We want to hear the blues, or we want to hear this, or we want to hear that. We want to hear our music, not your music. We don't want to hear fucking Winifred Atwell. <laughs> You know what I mean? Fuck off. You know what I mean? Uh, so it's a completely, you know, bullshit kind of atmosphere. I mean, I was doing, I did a whole range of free things in a, a church hall in Notting Hill. And Peter Green, bless him, he came down and played. And Charlie Watts came and played. All kinds of different people. Alexis Corner was a dear friend of mine. And... Uh, yeah, you had to you had to give a contribution at the door, whatever you could manage, you know. Yeah. So people gave whatever they could manage, you know, and, and um, there was never any money, but we uh, it was nice, you know, and, and uh, there was some amazing amazing music. And uh, the thing about it was, is it was it wasn't like formal. People people suddenly realised it was quite a re realisation. I think so people suddenly realised that. Things didn't have to be organised to the nth degree, but, you know. Like things in England are so so kind of structured, and have been for centuries. It's kind of stultifying that things could be a bit loose, you know. So you could do a show, for example, in some place and tell people, you know, people used to ask me all the time, "Well, what's the ticket price?" I said, "There are no tickets, so there's no ticket price, is there?" <laughs> Oh right, okay. So, but you can give money if you want. If you want to give money, there's a there's a box at the door. You just put some money in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. People were like, that was quite revolutionary. People were yeah. like, but there was oh. an idealistic quality, especially at the beginning of this, that middle part of the sixties, because you had you know the Barry Miles who was all part of that scene and Hoppy, 
Hopkins yeah. and, and the IG yeah. crowd, and then you had Joe Boyd, and, and then you had uh, 67, that was the Summer of Love with the 14-hour Technicolor Dream. So it was all happening, wasn't it? It was, it was, a, well, it was a kind of naive, beautiful innocence that was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, it was, uh, um, it was that kind of a conundrum between how active should we be in creating something new, which, you know, people wanted new stuff, so they were creating new stuff. And there are other people who were much more passive. It was like the active-passive conundrum, if you like. And people were saying, well, let's kind of start this scene here, you know, Alexander Palace or wherever uh, the UFO, you know, or wherever, you know, and let's see kind of how it evolves, what happens, you know what I mean, without necessarily pushing it in one direction. Because, of course, you know, everybody was high. And when people get high, people have different um, conceptions of where things should go. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so you know, it's it's kind of... It's sometimes better just to let things evolve as they will, you know, in a kind of peaceful and creative and, and charming atmosphere and let them, you know, do it. let them merrily wind their way to wherever, you yes. know. And did you feel that you'd found your kindred spirits and sort of a community at that stage and you started collaborating or slightly collaborating with other people? I just wondered if it was... Other well, I think we were, there, there was a community, but it was a co community that was defined by what we were not rather than what we were. Right. I mean, every, everybody, because what we were was terribly English anyway. Yeah. Everyone treated one another with, uh, with uh, uh, kindness and, and, and with forbearance, if you like, you know what I mean? And everybody <laughs> was kind of sweet to one another and, 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 you know, frightfully polite, and uh, you know, um, all all of, the, all of those kind of English sardines in a can quality that um, that exists in England anyway. You know, yes. uh, uh, so I don't, you know, I think what people brought people together was a, a general agreement that we weren't, you know, lovers of Winifred Atwell. Poor old Winifred Atwell. I'm giving her a hard time today. Yes, like she's, had, she's, you know had, it, she's had it from she, both sides. Yeah, she's emblematic of what I'm trying to, you know. <laughs> because six, to. 67 was particular, everything was really good and the honeymoon period of everything, you know, everything has a honeymoon period. So things was good in 67. You had, in January, yeah. you know, San Francisco had the gathering of the tribes. You had sort of yeah. April, June time, you had the 14-hour technical dream. Yeah. But then the 60s, things start getting grubby because then whatever, you, whatever scene starts and you think, oh, we're all together and we're all quite, similar mm. you, you you suddenly get other people get attracted to it and suddenly the party gets a bit grubby doesn't it as as things ever sort of hold well, well yeah yeah you know i mean yes and no i mean the thing is if you're um if you're a kind of anarchist which i guess i would describe myself as then you know you set things up and there's not necessarily a kind of final destination in mind yes you know who knows where it's likely to go so some things were terribly successful and other things were um to be kind weren't quite so successful <laughs> uh, it just depended on the you know on a, on a, a bunch of uh, imponderables and it would again uh, you have to realize that 
acid was ubiquitous. Everyone was taking LSD or mushrooms, man. Yes, absolutely. You know, lots of people were getting high. So that, of course, you know, you're not joining the army when you take LSD. No, you know, and there's that famous film, isn't there, of the British Army, where they tried LSD on a on a platoon of soldiers, and this sergeant is trying to get them to march, and they're all just falling about laughing, you know. So, and he's going, right, line up over here, <laughs> one two, one two, one two, and they're just all like, you're just cracking up, you know, they can't handle it. So, <clears throat> you know, um, lots of people. <laughs> entered the music business, not necessarily musicians, but musicians too. But a lot of people entered the music business with kind of megalomaniac ideas of what they were going to do, you know, what should be done. Yes. And uh, some of those um, wilder fantasies came to pass and, and lots of them didn't. But uh, I think that the for me, that's interesting. But personally, me personally, that's interesting is I, you know, I experienced the 60s in London uh, and in Europe. And then I went and lived in America and experienced the kind of the fruits of the 60s, if you like, in America. And then I ended up living in India and Ibiza and finally now living for the last 20 odd years in Australia. I just might let me, sorry, let me just finish my long, boring point here. Yeah. The different cultures, I think, had different experiences of the 60s. You know, the English experience of the 60s, of course, it was like cousin, cousin to the uh, American experience rather than sibling. Yes. If, you, if, if one can make that distinction. Yes, that's, that makes sense. Because you know, we... Go on, sorry. No, I was, I was going to say it must have felt because there was there was nothing you couldn't like. Now we can look back and you can see what happens in scenes. But then there was nothing to look back and say, oh, what might happen next? Trying to predict it every month must have felt like, oh, we've got this new album from, you know, Jefferson Airplane or The Doors or, you know, early Grateful Dead or The Beatles or The Stones. I mean, it must have felt like, you know, and fashion was changing so quick and, and sort of just everything was changing so, and politically things were changing and culturally things were changing. It, it must have felt a little bit, did you at that stage, and I think I spoke to Joe Boyd, that you felt that it was, you know, it was really gonna, the revolution was gonna happen and, and you were there at the, at the front of it, or did it not feel like that to you? I, I mean, to me personally, I didn't think that it was a proto-revolutionary situation in a classical Marxist sense, but I did think that it was a revolutionary situation in a consciousness sense, and I could feel that, and many people felt that, and that, I think, led to a wonderful flower, cultural flowering, if you like to call it that, in, in, in music and in painting, in writing. There was an absolute total shift in the zeitgeist during that period. I mean, I, I think everyone would agree with that. Uh, um, what it was, how it was, how to describe it, of course, is, you know, the million dollar question. I mean, I, to, how to write about it, um, you know, convincingly. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, not to sound like some kind of, you know, Alice through the looking glass 
strangeness. Um, you know, uh, I, I think the I've read very few books on the 60s that have captured that period um, super successfully. And, and of course, one of the things that I think people were prepared to do that participated at, at that time, they were prepared to allow things to, to morph into whatever they were going to morph into without being, strictly speaking, in control of it. People were like, like the, you know, were like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. I wonder where this is going to go to. Let's try this. Let's, uh, let's. I mean, like what I did for a couple of years was that. Well, let's just try inviting musicians to play in this church hall that I got, you know, in Notting Hill. And uh, yeah, if people want to give some money to come in, fine. They've got to give something whatever a penny a pound whatever whatever you want to give yes. you know what i mean and let's just uh, let's just see what happens man so you know what i mean yeah absolutely so how did you manage then from there and because obviously you didn't have i'm assuming you didn't have a job at that stage and somehow was surviving how did you suddenly find yourself in america well i mean i i um i went basically Basically, what you could do in the 60s was uh, if you were interested in music and you wanted to uh, be involved, right, you might say, want to be a musician, well, you taught yourself to play an instrument. Yes. You know, I went and got lessons or whatever, you know. Uh, my side of things was I was, I, I, I mean, I played guitar since I was eight, but I was never really interested in becoming a guitarist. You know, that was everybody else's fantasy. Play yes. guitar get the girls you know what i mean have everybody think that's, what, that's what lemmy lemmy had that same moment didn't yeah he, when he was at yeah school. that wasn't me i was more interested in well how do why do people wear what they wear how many people do you put in a band how many people can you have in a band you know is, is it two people nine people 12 people four people what you know uh how do you make albums uh, how do you, how are tours organized? How are gigs organized? How, you know, what's the, how do you handle the money? Who tells bands when to go on stage and when to come off stage? So basically I started right at the very beginning of all, 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 all of uh, my journey, which was to, you know, learn how to plug in guitars. How, the, yes. how, how amplifiers work, how you get a back line together, how you put up a drum kit and so, and how lighting works, how sound works, what microphones are, all this, all the nuts and bolts that are part and parcel of uh, the music business. So one of the th things about being a tour manager is you don't need to be an expert on all those different areas, but you do need to at least have some idea about yes. what's going on because you, you know what I mean? You're, that's what you're involved with. You're involved with setting up shows. So if you don't have any understanding that you're not going to be a very good tour manager. So I understood all that. And so I slowly got involved with um, putting on shows, basically producing shows, you know, uh, various shows, mainly free ones. Cause I was one, one of the, those funny people who for a while thought music should be free. Excellent. You, least, must have, you, know. you must have gone well, down well at the Isle of Man Festival if you were there. Um, no, I wasn't at the Isle of Man Festival, but I was at various festivals and I did did various festivals myself. I mean, no, I mean, free where it was possible to be free. 
Yes. You know what I mean? And, but what was uh, your experience like with, with like the Hyde Park, the Rolling Stones at Hyde Park? I mean, that must have... Well, I did that show, yeah. But I mean, before that, I did, uh, I did um, a Blind Fate. And before that, we did the Floyd. So, you know, we, we did a lot of shows, man, uh, that were free shows in, in, in parks before the Stones one. By the time we got to the Stones, Mick, Mick came to the Blind Face show with Marianne. Marianne was a friend of mine from when I was about 16 years old. My family knew her father. Her father was a lecturer in English at the University of Oxford. Anyway, um, Mick came with Marianne, right? And Paul McCartney was there and Donovan was there. It was a very, you know, glitterati kind of uh, event, you know, and they were all hanging around this uh, very, very poor size stage at, uh, at the back of it and uh, uh, Mick was chatting to me about how you put it together you know how you, how you do this who decides how big the stage is going to go who, who gets you know how you get the permission blah 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 all these things because the Stones hadn't played for a long time right they wanted to play Brian was um, you know had legal problems and all kinds of things and they were just fed up with Brian basically so Mick Taylor was on, on the horizon, you know, uh, to replace Brian. And um, so Mick was, yeah, they, they, they were trying to work out, you know, how they were going to introduce Mick Taylor, you know, where, where was, you know, where's their first gig going to be? They haven't fucking played for three years. Yeah. So the, the, the prospect of playing in Hyde Park um, appealed to them immensely, you know, and the... The gig for um, Blind Faith was fabulous. It was, um, I don't know, 151,000, something like that, 150,000 people. Everyone behaved themselves, clouds of ashy smoke. Everybody <laughs> just wanted to get high and listen to the music in the park. You know what I mean, man? What yeah, absolutely. What, what could be more innocent than that? I know. You know what I mean? And so it was a lovely day. The sun shone. And Mick just thought it was all, you know, everybody thought it was magic. It was magic. You and know, he thought, lovely... we want to have that as well. Yeah, we, we, this would be a good idea for us. And then... So basically, I ran with that, you know what I mean? And we, uh, yeah, we got it together, you know? So we wanted a special kind of stage, much bigger. We wanted a special sound, blah, 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 blah. You know, all the thousand and one things that constitute a, a, a gig of that size. And then, of course, you know, a few days before the actual show, Brian died. Right. Let's not get morbid and go into great de detail about that. But anyway, Brian passed away uh, with the aid of various other miscreants that were hanging around uh, Crotchford Farm. But there's, I don't want to go into that here. The, so Brian died and uh, I was in the office, actually, the Stones office, when th that news um, had to be dealt with. They, they found out about it the night before. They were in the studio out at Olympia. And um, so Mick came in the office and it was like, okay, well, what are we going to do, you know? So, you know, it was, it just was obvious that the thing to do was to go ahead with the gigs. They've been rehearsing with um, Mick Taylor anyway, you know what I mean? And do the gig and do it as a memorial to Brian. Yeah. So, you know, that's what we did hastily in four days. We got that together and, uh, you know, half a million people showed up and there's great, public sympathy for both the Rolling Stones and Brian at that time. The Stones, in the shape of, of Mick and Keith and Brian, had been persecuted by the police, you know, and so 
there was a great upswelling of, uh, of, of support, if you like, for the Stones. And when Brian died, which of course was headlines all over England, you know, um, you know, there was no sympathy in the, um, the British aristocracy or upper classes for Brian. They all, you know, all the media, the media all thought, oh, he's a degenerate rock and roll star. You know, he deserves every, everything he's got drowned in his own swimming pool, you know. Yeah. It was absolutely, you know, vicious, Not vicious nice. response to it. But young people had a different attitude to it. They were sympathetic to Brian and felt for Brian and felt that he'd been persecuted by the police. So half a million people showed up to smoke a joint and support, you know, the Rolling Stones and Brian. And from very significantly, from that day forward, this police never persecuted the Rolling Stones ever again. The police were shocked and so were the, um, were the establishment by the depth of the support that the Rolling Stones actually had, the sympathy that they, uh, they um, elicited, you know, from young people. So, of course, you know, that, that was, a, I think, a very, you know, a seminal moment in the, in the counterculture, if you like to call, call it the counterculture. The counterculture, yes, absolutely. So then that was your sort of ticket to the next phase, wasn't it? This is where... Yeah, well, they, then they asked me, they loved the show, and they said, OK, well, we need a tour manager in America. Come and be our tour manager. And it was, and you were part of that whole next wave where Mick's there being at the press conference saying, we're going to put this free concert on somewhere in the, oh, we've got the place, it's Altamont. It'll be fine. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that, that has just been, you know, uh, analysed to death. And I mean, I, I actually swore I'd never do, on the 50th anniversary, I decided, OK, I'm not going to do any more interviews. No, but don't blame About, uh, uh, you know, specifically about that. No. But, you know, it was all bullshit, man. I mean, one guy got killed, killed, or well, four people died. One was killed by uh, Hell's Angels, right? Uh, uh, two, two were, yeah, no, two drowned. No, one drowned, one was killed by the Hells Angels and two got run over by a tractor because they were sleeping in sleeping bags and nobody saw them or some sort of thing. But anyway, there's been disasters, you know, on an epic scale since then. Yeah. That might have to look like, you know what I mean, having a cup of tea with your granny. Yes. Uh, or or know, Wilfred Atwell. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> but did you, I mean, just, I didn't want to dwell on that. I mean, what was the, what, what was your, um, without those details, did you have a good time there, by the way? No, of course not. No, but I mean, you know, being a tour manager, man, is not necessarily all, you know, wonderful. No. And sometimes it's a pain in the ass and sometimes it's, it's, it's frightening and sometimes it's uh, whatever, you know, it could be all, all, all things. So, you know, when you, if you're a tour manager and you can only handle things that are really loving and kind and sweet and beautiful, then you better fucking go work for the Dagnum Girl Pipers or somebody. The you brownies. know what I mean? You want to work for the Rolling Stones. Yes. You need to be made of somewhat um, tougher inner... Um, materials you know so the um, next the um, next so that obviously is the moment that you you sort of if you're going to stick with it you're going to stick with it aren't you and you stuck with it yeah yeah and i that, mean but the other side of the coin is <coughs> excuse me everybody likes to go 
Oh, yeah, man, I did that. Yeah, that was a great success. I organized all that. Nobody wants to go, yeah, well, I organized that, man. That was a complete, total cock-up of epic proportions. People died. There was no toilets. It was fucked. You know, the place where the, where the, the gig was held was totally inappropriate, blah, 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 blah. You know, people don't do that, do they? No. But, you know... You know, uh, to to coin a phrase by God knows who, you know, you have to take the shit with the sugar. Sure, you do. And uh, it has to be dealt with, you know. You can't just, you know, if if your band does a show that is a disaster, then somebody somewhere has to deal with that. So the Rolling Stones left America, basically because they were terrified of being sued by the survivors or the, you know, the, the and uh, somebody had to deal with it. So I, I was that person. Yeah. But um, at the same time, what happened was the Grateful Dead, whose show it was, it wasn't the Rolling Stones free show Altamont. It was actually the Grateful Dead's free show Altamont, organised by the Grateful Dead. All the bands that played, including the Rolling Stones, were invited by the Grateful Dead. The media turned it into a rock, the, the Rolling Stones gig Altamont, which it wasn't. There was uh, Santana, Crosby, Stills and Nash, the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane. You know, it was a, a hell of a lineup. Yes. Um, and uh, a hell of a day. Because but, um, it, yeah, anyway, the, go on. I was going to say there was a there was a lot of chat recently, a lot of chat, a discussion about Woodstock and the fact that it was really. I mean, because the film comes out and it looks amazing and it's had this kind of wow, Woodstock was not yeah. great, and then people have kind of looked back at it and analysed and went, it was a total disaster. I mean, how it wasn't mass death on an epic scale was just a miracle, but it must have been just at that time there was there wasn't an element in that crowd that kind of kicked off, so everyone just held it together. But there was like one toilet, two burger no, vans. Disaster. No food. There was no, there was food. no food. Zero and, uh, food. The there, was, there was no the fence local. and there was no stage and there was nothing. No, and yeah, no. and they put this thing on and somehow they get away with it and they get the film, which, you know, Martin Scorsese is vaguely involved in. And it's like, wow, Woodstock, it's amazing. But then, you know, people look back and went, it was a fucking disaster, you know. And Michael yeah. Lang, you know, not, the, not a man for detail. Michael couldn't, I know him well, he couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery. The only thing he can do is make babies. He's got about nine kids. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he does make babies well. Bless him. No, I mean, Woodstock was a disaster, of course. But anyway, going back to my long, boring tale, the, uh, whilst Altamont was happening, the manager of the Grateful Dead was a Christian minister, no less. The Reverend Len- Lenny Hart, the father of the drummer, Mickey, or one of the two drummers, and he ripped him off for $350,000. So immediately after Altamont, I was staying at Jerry Garcia's house, and Garcia and I were having long conversations about how the Rolling Stones actually organised themselves as a band. And Garcia was just absolutely shocked to find out that actually three people ran the Rolling Stones, three people and, and their equipment guy, Ian Stewart, you know, two yes. girls in the office and an accountant and Ian Stewart. And at that time, the Rolling, the Grateful Dead had about 70 people working for them. It was like, hang on a second, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I was brought into bring in uh, um, a touch of kind of hardcore reality to the 
to the, to the organizer. So, the what part did um, Rock? What part did Rock Scully play? I thought he was he not a Rock was a former manager of the Grateful Dead, one of many. Yes, and uh, he looked after the the albums and recordings and stuff like that. And I mean, a lot of the people around the Grateful Dead invented um, things for themselves to do, as it were, you know, to justify their. Uh, positions. Uh, Rock was a, a sweetheart. He loved the Grateful Dead and was one of the earliest, um, earliest uh, members of the of the extended family. He was a, a lovely man. It was actually he and Keith Richards who first discussed the possibility of the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead playing together in California. Right. In London, that was in 1968 when Rock came to London and was best busted at Heathrow Airport with 40 tabs of LSD on him. Bless him. Bless him. Yeah, I know. It, yeah. it has so then that must have, so then you thought, blimey, America, Grateful Dead, sod England. Was that kind of your, this is no, it? Not at all. No, not sod England. No, just, uh, look, you know, you, you deal with what's in front of you in this life. You know, I mean, it's again, it's the it's the active passive conundrum. You know what I mean? You can yeah. sit and wait for things to happen. You can make things happen. Uh, you know what I mean? It, it depends. You know what I mean? And, and uh, if you're, you know, if you're uh, if you're lively and things are happening, then you decide, well, I'll do this or I'll do that or whatever. You know, the Grateful Dead were great. I went to a couple of gigs, loved it. Got high, high. Had a quick whip round Jupiter and Saturn, liked it, and uh, yeah, I, I can work with these people because you know I had something they wanted. I loved their music. They lo they loved the fact that I knew how to organize. They never really had a professional people working with them. Yes, everybody was uh, very well meaning and and very beautiful and all that, and had a certain kind of robust California um, side to them, you know. Um, but uh, they weren't what you would call pros, but they were cut, cutting edge. You know, their the sound systems were amazing. The, the technology that they employed was amazing, certainly cutting edge. And uh, they wanted to be, you know, a successful rock and roll band, basically. They wanted to be a successful band. They wanted to survive. So they had a $350,000 hole in the accounts. And the only way you could survive was to get, up, get out there and work your ass off, you know, man, to work. Yeah. So the first year, I think we did 181 gigs. That's a lot of gigs a year. That is a lot of stuff. That's yeah, so we just out. worked, man. We worked, 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 paid off the debts, got it all organised, got everybody, you know, got the road crew down to a, a sensible uh, number of people, you know, and um, yeah. And the band just got better and better and better and everybody was uh, singing from the same uh, hymn book, you know, and... Uh, and of course, that's part of the art of tour management and of management itself is to get bands to focus on what they're seeking to achieve and for everyone to be, you know, in step. Yes, you like that extra, you like the, 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 the guide. Because a few years ago, the film came out, didn't it, of um, Festival Express, which was one of the... So you must have been pleased that that kind of became sort of much more available and people could see what that was all about. Yeah, I mean that was a that was a fantasy, a lovely fantasy. A guy with bare feet came to my office in California, and my my secretary said, "There's a guy out here who wants to do a train trip across Canada." 
So I said, okay, well, you know, I'll have a chat with him. It sounds great. Why not? And he came in and had a talk. And while I was having a talk with him, my secretary checked him out to see who he was, right? His name was Thor Eaton. And it turned out he was the heir to the Eaton department stores in uh, in Canada. That's like the Woolworths of Canada. Right. So he's, so she called me on my yeah, intercom and said, yeah, he's worth 300 million. So I said, well, you know, how much do you want to lose to do what you're talking about? He said, well, you know, I put a couple of million into it. So he did. It was a wonderful party. It lost lots of money. And uh, we all had a fabulous time. Yes. And, and what was it like? Film, I mean, you know? at this stage, you know, you were, I mean, this was when Janice Joplin was there as well. As, I yeah. mean, there was some pretty amazing characters, but also people who weren't going to last that much longer. How did you sort of cope with that, that those kind of, blimey, not Janice as well? No, I mean, Janice was a dear friend of mine. I've never, been, you know, man, cut somebody, they all bleed, man. I mean, I've never been that, um, you know, I'm, I've never been that impressed by musicians. Yeah. You know I mean? They're just human beings, man. They are, but, but I suppose, you know, it's like, oh, shit, so-and-so's passed away. That's, you know, I just talked to, was talking to them. We were working with each other a few months ago and suddenly they've kind of passed. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, listen, I've had five cancers and four wives. So it's a fucking miracle I'm alive. Yes. Apart from the old people who tried to kill me in the in the uh, execution of my duties. You know <laughs> what I mean? We live we live a you know we've lived uh, fast and dangerous lives, man. You know. So wow. of course, you know, there's a at my generation paid a serious price, you know, for our ignorance for not knowing that you don't mix heroin with alcohol, for example. That killed a fucking lot of people. You know what I mean? And and not knowing, you know, how to take care of oneself in the face of, you know, epically uh, challenging lifestyles. Yes. So, you know, we've had to learn, you know, have to learn. So, you know, Taylor Swift today lives a very different life to what Janis Joplin lived yes. 50 years ago. Right. So we've become a little bit more, um, you know, aware, <laughs> shall we say, you know, of how to survive, haven't we? So we're... We've got 10 minutes because at nine o'clock, my son is coming to take me to breakfast. Nice. So, okay, then. So how did you... So, Go on. Yeah, I was going to say, so how did you then navigate? Because during the 70s, you know, you'd had the, the 60s as sort of finished with that kind of... You know, I mean, when I spoke to Barry Miles, I, I sort of said, well, what happened to you in the 70s? And he said, well, we were all really tired. We just felt like we needed to go to sleep. That was kind of his quote. And then... And then and you realise that most people have that kind of moment where they're on it and then they, they go to sleep for a few days or weeks and then there's a new scene, yeah. and a new gang. So you had glam rock, you had punk, you know, things changed. And, and so how did you, you know, but you were with the Grateful Dead, who were these kind of people who were just still in the 60s but going through the 70s, getting bigger and bigger? Well, the Grateful Dead walked a, a unique and individual path. They weren't, you know... The, the, I mean, I also was with the band. I was with the Allman Brothers. I represented a lot of different musicians over the years. You know, the Grateful Dead were completely and totally unique. The Grateful Dead were a jazz... Miles Davis called the Grateful Dead a jazz band that played rock and roll. Yes. That was Miles Davis said that. Right. And the Grateful Dead, perhaps the most embarrassing moment in the whole history of the Grateful Dead and the Grateful Dead played for 50 years was when Miles Davis opened for them. 
they were so embarrassed by it that somebody of Miles's status, you know, should have to open for them. Yeah. They, yeah, they, yeah, they found that terribly, um, yeah, they, they found it humbling, you know. But uh, they were wonderful people. No, uh, what happened with me, man, was in 19, about 1975, I was like, I had my midlife crisis. I was like, why am I doing this? You know what I mean? I don't really care about this. I did the I did the largest fucking show in the history of the music business, paid admissions, six hundred and ten thousand people, right, at Watkins Glen with the band The Grateful Dead and the Orman Brothers, just three bands on the bill. Amazing, successful, incredible show. I did the European tour with the Grateful Dead. Right, where we, we recorded everything and, and uh, they put out um, the largest set of recordings ever released 72 albums, right? You know, uh, CDs of the, sh- of the shows, etc. So, you know, all I climbed up a lot of mountains, yes, you know, and I'd, I'd done that. And I was like, well, you know, okay, it's all very well fucking making other people's fantasies come true. What do you want to do, Sam, for you? So I'd always wanted to be a writer. And uh, I was like, well, you know what? Fuck all this. I'm going to go to India. I broke up with my girlfriend at the time. I'm going to go to, I was living in Texas. I built a racetrack in Texas, a horse racing track at a rodeo arena and a music place that could hold 3,000 people, all that stuff. And, um, and, uh, we were arguing about money, you know, American style. And I'm just fed up with it all, man. I don't, I don't really care that much. I'm going to go to India and have my Indian time and I'm going to work out what I care about. So I went to India, spent three years in India, and what I cared about was simple. I cared about being a writer. And, uh, you know, I didn't care about money. I've never cared about money. I don't give a fuck about money. I haven't got any, but I don't care anyway. You know what I mean? And it was like, well... You know, if you you know if you're poor and you're happy to be poor, you know what I mean. Yeah. And you want to be a writer, why aren't you fucking doing it? So that's what I've done ever since. I write, and uh, I'm happy, and uh, yeah, life goes on. I've got lots of wonderful friends uh, who've survived the music business, and every once in a while, I'll go to a show or whatever. You know, the Stones came to. Australia, I've got, uh, my sons were, what, 17 and 15 when the Stones came to Australia. Charlie called me up. said, Sam, uh, I don't know how he got my phone number, but he did. Sam, we're coming to Brisbane. You want to come to the show? You know, bring your kids and everything. I said, yeah, sure, man, that'd be lovely. So I went to the show. You know, it was funny because I said to my uh, uh, my uh, two sons, I said, you want to go see the Rolling Stones? They're coming to Brisbane. My youngest son said the, uh, an immortal line. He looked at me and said, the Rolling Stones? Granny likes the Rolling Stones, Dad. <laughs> yeah. <Dear>. Cheeky bugger. <laughs> but they came and their kudos uh, went up immeasurably at their local high school, of course, because they had pictures taken with everybody, you know. The Stones were charming. It was lovely to see them after so many years. And, uh, yeah, I'm one of those guys that shows up once in a while backstage and says hello, you know to different people. So I write and um, life is good. And the music business, well, you know, I mean, I don't, what am I going to do? Listen to Taylor Swift? Give me a fucking break. Most of what's happening in the music business is just 
excruciatingly painful. But then, you know, we sound like our parents, don't we? Something that we swore we would never do, you know, and our parents are going, oh, yeah, well, you know, wow, man, in those days, you know, Frank Sinatra, now there was a guy who could really sing or whatever, you know what I mean? Yes. And uh, so we've moved on since those days. Well, that, it does happen quite quickly, doesn't it? Suddenly you don't understand what the next generation are listening to. And you say that, you know, I don't, I can't even hear their lyrics and that's just not right. But you did, I mean, it was quite an amazing kind of trajectory that you had of kind of like from that first bit to where you yeah. went very quickly and yeah. managed to navigate that, not wind up dead or, or yeah. nice. Or mad. Well, mad. Rel relatively mad. Yeah, but it was quite, and there was nothing before that. I mean, do you, I mean, when you look back, I mean, with all the dealings you had and yeah. working with other people, do you also feel completely kind of clean about it? You know, I mean, I just wondered if you ever sort of went, oh, shit, there was a few things I wish I hadn't done during that period, which I... Yeah, not really. I'm writing a, I'm writing the second volume of a memoir about it. No, man. It's called The Secret Life of Sam Cutler. There's a whole bunch of things about me that people don't know. I was the first Englishman ever arrested on the first American nuclear submarine that came to England. Right. I, was a, right. I was a member of the Direct Action Committee that organised anti-nuclear weapon uh, demonstrations, all kinds of stuff. I went to jail in Scotland. I was arrested in the Gaelach, which is outside, Edinburgh, uh, outside Glasgow. Went to jail. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff, man. That no, I was a bodyguard uh, during the Committee 100 days for Bertrand Russell. All kinds of things that nobody knows about me, yes. which are... They're going to be in the second volume of my of my memoirs, which is called "The Secret Life of Sam Cutler." I was uh, I was in prison for a few years for a drug uh, bust, all kinds of things. Blimey. So all that it will be in in another book. Um, also, I've just done a book, <laughs> six books actually, a series of books about a cat, my cat, that talks to human beings and explains to human beings basically what's wrong with them <laughs> as people, as a species. Uh, so it's a kind of, um, the cat is a, a vehicle for philosophical insights into um, humanity. So that as I've finished, I'm, I'm just writing the introduction. The introduction to it is to tell you quickly is this cat is given to me. And I'm not even a cat person, I'm a dog person. But I'm living in an apartment and I can't have a dog in an apartment, really. So I've been given a cat from a friend. So sitting there looking at this cat and thinking, well, you know, I'm a dog person, not a cat person. What the fuck am I doing with a cat, you know? The cat kind of looks at me with this strange look that cats can sometimes generate and says to me, well, what do you know about... Um, um, oh, fuck. Come on, I'm just having an old-timers moment here now. Um, uh, what do you know about uh, the, the, the island that sank, um, uh, Atlantis? What do you know about Atlantis? I think to myself, this fucking cat, did it just speak to me? And it looks at me, what do you know about Atlantis? I'm like, the cat spoke to me. So I, I can't tell people this. They're going to start calling me the cat whisperer or something. They're all <laughs> I've gone nuts, you know. And so the third time he says, well, what do you know about Atlantis? So I kind of have to answer, you know. So I 
explain, you know, very briefly what I know about Atlantis, you know, which is about as much as anybody else knows, really, you know, that Plato mentioned it, blah, 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 blah. And then the cat proceeds to tell me what, what, what happened at Atlantis that was unique. So I won't spoil it for you, but that is the beginning of a, a series of books. And the first one is called The Book of Max. The right. name of the cat is Max. And he talks about the human race and, and all of the errors that humanity has made and uh, um, where it's gone wrong. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's huge. Uh, it's 800. I don't know if you know about writing, but it's 800,000 words. So if you take an average paperback, 800,000 words will be about five paperbacks. Blimey, you have been on a creative role, haven't you? Now, just briefly. Been, yeah, for years. This is nine years I've been working on this. So just be, you know, and I might have missed this. Do you really have a cat? Yeah. Oh, right. So someone really. Right now. Yeah. yeah. He's, got, he's got the cat and he's cool. Yeah. Max, where are you? Come here, Max. Max, Max. Max, Max, Max. 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 Uh, he's not here. He's probably out somewhere. He's gone out yeah yes. <laughs> no, i have a black cat yeah he's nice he's just yeah he's a sweetheart I have yeah, to say so there we are life is good and uh, my mother always used to say to me well you should save money you know you've got to do something about when you know what what's going to happen when you're old i used to go i mean under my breath i never said it directly to her you should say fuck off i don't give a fuck about when i'm old you know don't be stupid you know what i mean <laughs> I never used to think about it. But as it happens, through a series of strange, fortunate circumstances, I ended up in a very beautiful uh, modern apartment owned by the Australian government. And uh, I get a pension. And uh, I have a car and a yacht and an aeroplane and I water the workers' beer. You probably don't know that song. So I should, <laughs> my last thing, I shall sing, this, sing you this song. <clears throat> oh, I'm the man, the very fat man who waters the workers' beer. Oh, I'm the man, the very fat man who waters the workers' beer. And what do I care if it makes them ill or makes them feel horrible queer? I have a car and a yacht and an aeroplane and I water the workers' beer. That is a classic folk song, isn't it? There we are. Who wrote <laughs> it? Uh, a guy called Bill Budge that was a friend of my family's. My mother was a lifelong communist and I was raised in a very radical family. Yes. Did you know the Booth family? Who? The Booth. A Booth family? Booth. He, there was a son called Simon who became a musician in various bands. Not really, no. But, I mean, I may well have done it. It's just, you know, man, I'm 77. You forget these things. Yeah. Now... Young man, you've got one more question because I'm going to have to go. Yeah, you do. You okay, always do this again. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes, absolutely. What would you, you know, just last then, what would you have said to or think that you would have said to an 18-year-old self who was on your path? You know, if you could have said, oh, look, Sam, I'll just say one word or one thing I'll, I'll say to you as you trundle off with that, before you have that joint. All that well, time. I'd say what Garcia always used to say to me. When I said to him, let's do this, let's do that, whatever, right? Jerry always used to look at me and say, will it be fun? So what I say is this, go for the fun. Go for the fun. Yeah, you're not in the fucking army. You know what I mean? 
you're not in the Navy, you don't have to obey orders, go and have fun, which is kind of, you know, fun is a kind of, um, what is fun? Fun is a kind of a, a light and innocent version of pleasure. Yes. You know, a kind of innocent hedonism. Which is the best one. I think that's, that's why people look back at that kind of golden period of the 60s, because it had a certain innocence before Charles Manson appeared. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, even the finest dreams can go wobbly. They do go wobbly. Everything has yeah. a wobble. That's life. But tell, there we are. go and see Max. Look, you better go and see your son. I've got to. He's going to be knocking on the door in a second. I've got to get dressed. But thank you so much for talking to me. I hope, um, well, I don't know. What do I hope? I hope uh, somebody somewhere found, find, found it interesting or will find it interesting. What are you going to do with it? Well, I, I sort of, um, yes, I, I sort of cut it up a bit, put it out there, and I'll send you a, a link, and then you can put it up if you want yourself. I would love to, because, I mean, I've got 17,000 followers on Facebook, so they'd all love to see it. Yeah. In America. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's do that. That would be nice. I'd appreciate it. I will. Lovely to talk to you. Okay. Take care there. Onwards and upwards, as they yes. say. Onwards, definitely upwards. Okay, or sideways. Yeah, Look, nice love to Max. All right, bud. Thank you. Bye. 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 And that is how you end an interview. I love those bits. Anyway, the awkwardness of life. That was me in conversation with Sam Cutler, talking about life, love, poetry, the Rolling Stones, Grateful Dead, and much, much more. A big thank you to Sam for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastor, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some amazing reason, do on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, C86 show. Keep it positive. Otherwise, you know, don't bother. And these have all been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. So uh, C86 show, you get the gist. Anyway, look, have a great week. Um, go and check out the archive and there'll be more, more going up very soon. Anyway, that's it. Bye. <laughs>